Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest will be very familiar to subscribers of Livewire. Christopher Joy co-founded Coolabar Capital Investments in 2011, and it's since grown to house about $7 billion in funds under management. Coolabar is a leading active credit alpha manager with 28 portfolios across Insto and Retail. Chris also has a storied history analyzing Australia's property market. In 2008, when the world was in the throes of the GFC, the Australian government ploughed $15 billion into a policy proposal developed by Chris to provide liquidity to the Australian residential mortgage-backed securities market. He also founded research and investment group Rismark International. While there, he designed Australia's first quality-controlled house price indices, the IP for which is used to this day by CoreLogic. In today's episode, we dive into the RBA's latest rate decision, the dire outlook for Australia's housing market, and how Coolabar generate returns by exploiting mispricings in the bond and cash markets. He also spins a yarn about the time he challenged GMO's Jeremy Grantham to put his money where his mouth is. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on The Rules of Investing. Thanks for having me. It's a huge privilege. (laughs) So you'll be happy to know that you actually wrote two of the top five performing wires on Livewire in 2022. You're top. serious? Yeah, your top performer pulled in uh, 84,000 clicks. 84,000 reads? Yeah. That's actual reads? If, yeah, actual, read, <laughs> actual reads. I thought my stuff was just so niche and uh, idiosyncratic that there really wouldn't be an audience for it. Oh, I'm, I'm super surprised. You're modest, Chris. Only one way I beat it, actually, which had 89,000 clicks. Now, I know you're a pretty competitive beast, so maybe this interview can put you on top. <laughs> so, uh, which uh, son of a motherless goat beat me? Uh, I was <coughs> Bell Potter. <laughs> wow, the Bell Boys. Okay. But they, um, I mean, they're obviously working with a much bigger asset class. Correct. Stocks. Yeah. It, it was their yearly stock picks, oh, okay. their top stock picks. So, hard to beat. So two in the top five. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. How did um, how did Charlie Jamison go? Um, did Gemma have any? Um, he was he was hits? up there, but he wasn't in the top five or ten. Yeah, by probably yeah. doesn't surprise me. I'm <laughs> <laughs> only joking, Jamo. Shout out to Charlie. So let's launch straight into it. RBA hiked by 25 bips this week, uh, striking a pretty hawkish tone as it did so. I'd love to start today's chat by just getting your reaction to it. Um, I mean, it was expected. It was priced. Uh, uh, we had a, a strong inflation print. Um, the market was looking for the RBA to provide guidance towards a higher terminal cash rate. Uh, they've done that. It looks like they're going to hike at least two more times. And unless <clears throat> they really get relief on the data, um, you know, we are going to likely end up with a cash rate somewhere between 35 to 4%. You know, they've said restrictive is above 25 um, and we don't trade rates, so we don't, you know, have views um, in our portfolios that seek to exploit uh, mispricings in RBA expectations. Uh, we trade credit, not rates. Um, we do hedge vast volumes of rates across our twelve billion dollar book, but um, we do do a huge amount of macro work, and this is very important for us because it impacts our you know, views on. The behaviour of households, <clears throat> you know, the banks that service them, uh, obviously the the performance of the macro economy, um, and and so on. Personally, I think the RBA has time on its side. We've never seen 
an increase in rates of this magnitude before. Uh, it's going to have massive uh, real economy consequences uh, and it's going to completely crush uh, consumer spending and growth. Notwithstanding that <clears throat> the Aussie economy benefits from a number of unique tailwinds in the form of high commodity prices, uh, we've been very strong in strong on forecasting um, exceptional population growth over the last couple of years. Uh, we've been ex anticipating uh, record migration. We're now seeing that. Uh, so we're actually bullish and, and positive on the Aussie economy, but make no mistake, uh, we're seeing as a result of an unprecedented increase in interest rates, um, a radical rewiring <coughs> of both financial market architecture and the economic architecture. And if I can just add that, um, you know, the RBA recently released a sobering analysis where they asked themselves the question, well, what would happen to households free cash flow if we lifted the cash rate to 3.6%? This is the last year. And right now we're at 3.35. And we're going to go past 3.6. And their numbers imply that 15% of all borrowers <coughs> will have negative free cash, cash flow. And what that means is um, uh, potentially they're at risk of not being able to pay their mortgages. Uh, just to be clear, the RBA defined free cash flow as the borrower's income, less their mortgage repayments, less their essential living expenses. You know, one could make the case that potentially they, the, there is some discretionary or um, non-essential spending possibly incorporated in that definition of essential living expenses. And then the RBA has made the point, as have others, that households have accumulated um, significant savings buffers. But you know, 15% of all households, all things being equal, have negative cash flow. And they found that 52% of all households will see their free cash flow uh, shrink by an amazing 20% to 100% or more than 100% if you go into a negative cash flow. Yeah, so there's you know four incredibly handsome young men sitting in this room and we're all going to be subject to uh, a cash flow squeeze as our mortgage rates rise. Um, and this is going to be amplified by the fact that the RBA has also shown that back in 21 and 2020, when Phil Lowe told us rates wouldn't rise until 2024, um, and we should all go out and borrow and spend <clears throat> as much as possible. He actively encouraged households and government agencies to invest and take advantage of all this cheap money. And you might remember the RBA said, we're going to give you, the banking system, $188 billion. Bucks. Uh, you only have to pay 0.1% interest annually on the $188 billion. Bucks. Technically, it was 0 0.1 to 0.25. But basically, the banks got free money. And that was three-year money. And then they gave us three-year loans that were uber cheap. And we all went out and bought houses, myself included. And um, uh, all that money has to be repaid by the bank starting this March. And all those fixed-rate home loans, those three-year fixed-rate home loans, which we got at, you know, I think I've got one at 1.9%. But most people got it, you know, somewhere between 1.75 and 2.25%. Those one in four Aussie home loans this year in 2023 flipped from being fixed to floating and the mortgage rate that those folks are paying will jump from 2% to 6%. So for those folks, it's pretty diabolical. And then for all asset prices, 
We used to live in a world where the RBA cash rate was zero. You would struggle to find a term deposit rate above 0.5%. I was sitting with the treasurer of CBA today and he mentioned to me that now they're now offering a term deposit special of 4%. So the hurdle rate that all investments now need to beat with a very big buffer has gone from nothing, as in zero, to 4%. And we've gone from a world where we had Tina, there is no alternative to, and, and one in which you know we're all searching for yield in commercial property, residential property, growth stocks, tech stocks, fintech, crypto, um, private credit and high yield to a world in which, you know, we're buying, um, you know, we bought in the last, uh, you know, six or so months, two and a half billion dollars of bank bonds. And, you know, I bought uh, an ANZ bond this week that was paying me 6.75%. So if you can get 6.75% interest rates on an ANZ bond, then why would you buy commercial property at four or five or a resi investment property paying three to four or crypto paying nothing? I mean, this is just profound. Okay, so that's uh, what the RBA thinks is going to happen to households. How much pain to the household is the RBA willing to bear in its fight against prices? <clears throat> well, that's a really interesting question and embedded within it, nested in its detail, is a bit of an interesting live wire story. So when the RBA started hiking rates in May 22, they actually had their own internal house price forecast. Now, they said neutral was two and a half. They said they wanted to get back to two and a half. <clears throat> so we know that they're assuming that rates would go from zero to at least two and a half. And according to their own internal models, they bizarrely expected that increasing rates by two and a half percentage points um, would basically have a negligible to no impact on house prices. They were not expecting any material decline in house prices at all by their own admission, by their own analysis. <clears throat> and this was in May. So they basically thought they could have a free lunch, you know, hike mortgage rates from 2% to 4.5%, and not much would happen to house prices. The problem for the RBA was that Coolabar Capital, and, and myself in particular, had access to their housing models. Um, and it's a very sophisticated model of the housing market developed by Trent Saunders and Peter Tulip, and both have since left the RBA. And <clears throat> knowing that we would have a hiking cycle eventually and having the intuition that this would be cataclysmic for housing, I went to my economist internally at Coolabar and said, guys, what I want you to do is replicate this fiendishly complex model of housing that the RBA's published and developed. It has 600 lines of code, but it accounts for everything. It accounts for house prices, obviously, uh, incomes, interest rates, supply, rents, um, population, and so on. So we went through that model. We actually found mistakes uh, in the RBA's housing model. We fixed them. We upgraded the model. We went to the original developers. We actually hired one of them as a contractor, and we got him to review what we'd done. And unfortunately for the RBA, <coughs> We looked at two scenarios. We said, okay, uh, and this is in 2021, before, way before they'd started hiking rates. In fact, before people were even thinking of them hiking rates, we said, what happens if the RBA permanently increases mortgage rates by 100 bips? And the model said house prices should fall by 30%. Now, the biggest fall on record in 40 years of data is about 10.7%. And then we said, okay, let's look at another scenario where we're a bit, a bit more dynamic. And let's assume the cash rate goes from zero to 4.25% and they cut it back down a bit. And in that scenario, house prices actually fell by 40%. What 
we did a bunch of additional analysis. And in October 2021, I published in the AFR column that basically said, after the RBA starts hiking rates by at least 100 basis points, we believe house prices will fall by 15 to 25%. So in May, when they started this hiking cycle, they were expecting no impact on households in terms of house prices. Um, and what happened was on Livewire, we actually published this research in 2021, and then we published it in June 21, and it caused absolute shockwaves inside Martin Place. We'll, we'll link to it in the notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it caused shockwaves inside Martin Place. And so what actually happened was there was a freedom of information search that the RBA was forced to release, and they released 105 pages of material. And much of this, all, much of the 105 pages was Coolabar and Joy Boy are... Uh, <laughs> I've replicated our model and they're using our model and they're getting a 30% drop in house prices. But when we use our model, we get diddly squat. What is going on? So you see all these emails that they released <clears throat> from senior economists saying, we can't figure it out. Like, you know, how do we reconcile it? Eventually they did figure it out. And eventually they got to our numbers. This is all in circa June, July uh, last year. And suddenly they turned around and said, oh, we now think house prices are going to fall by 11%. That's actually a bigger fall than any previously recorded since 1980. But they still weren't close to our 15 to 25% drawdown. In October 21, <clears throat> when I published that forecast, not one mainstream analyst in the market expected house prices to decline, as in there were no public house price forecasts predicting declines. Um, and frankly, in October 21, you know, there was still a debate as to whether the RBA would be raising rates at all in 22 or 2023. In late 21, we said we thought the RBA would start hiking in mid-22. Uh, at some point from that uh, juncture forward, they started it in May. Uh, we expected two to three hikes that year. This is back in October. Obviously, we got 300. We're expecting 75. Um, and, you know, they front-end loaded and, and were very, very aggressive. Um, so, so now we face a situation where they haven't hiked to 250. Um, now they've hiked um, by 325, and they're likely to hike by 350 to 375 at least. And um, we're still comfortable with our, our forecast correction of 15 to 25%, um, but we have seen the housing market doing exactly what we expected. Literally, the, the, the week they started hiking rates, the house prices started falling. Nationally, Sydney house prices from their peak last year are now off 14%. The, the five capital city index is off um, uh, over 10%, uh, Brisbane's off about 11%, Melbourne's off about 9.5%, and this is already the second biggest Aussie housing correction on record. House prices are falling at about 1, 1.5% per month. We will breach the all-time record for the biggest correction in Aussie house prices in 43 years of data, um, uh, we believe, next month. So in actually, sorry, we believe this month in, in February or March, we think we'll breach the record. Yeah, in, in February. Uh, and that was actually something I said last year. I thought that in February 23, we'd breach the record. So I think um, the RBA, the short answer to my, your questions, and obviously I've you know, um, given you a little bit of a, an elongated soliloquy, but the short answer is when the RBA started raising rates, um, I think they've massively underestimated the the first, second, and third order consequences of this profound change in the cost of capital and household behavior. The problem is it's very hard to decode from the data because we've got these massive cross currents where um, you know you had huge fiscal stimulus, this massive buildup in savings, uh, coinciding with a reopening of an economy that had been shut down for years. And so huge ebullience. We all went out and partied like it was 1999. Um, 
I mean, you guys are all um, possibly a little bit younger than me, but um, you know, you, you, everyone was hitting bars. I don't drink for what it's worth for you, everyone's a doubt. Um, but but everyone was hitting bars and spending uh, like it was going out of fashion. But at the same time, we've all known that there's this dark day that's dawning on the horizon, which is you know the spectre of much much higher interest rates. One thing also that's important in the data is that. In Australia, all home loans used to be variable rate. And so when the RBA lifted rates, it had an instant impact. So about 85% were variable rate and 15% were uh, fixed. And then when the RBA lent that $188 billion to the, the banks, that was three-year fixed money. The banks went out and gave three-year fixed rate home loans. And the share of fixed rate home loans in the economy went from basically about 15% to about 40%. And that has meant that the impact of these rate hikes have been delayed because people like us who've got fixed rate home loans, we haven't felt the impact, but we're going to feel it this year or next year when our loans switch. And so so I think that um, the RBA has time on its side. I think it's underestimating the severity and consequences of this unprecedented increase in, in rates. And I think it's fascinating that Martin Place with 800 analysts, could they couldn't even use the, the model that was developed in-house that's been very accurate that would have told them that if you raise rates you know, by to 250 basis points or 350 basis points, you're going to get 30 to 40% drops in house prices according to the model. Our numbers are slightly different, but they couldn't even get that right. And They just, they just needed one joy boy. <laughs> they just needed one joy boy and they needed a live wire. <laughs> uh, and we actually, for the for those who are listening, if you want to kind of follow that uh, freedom of information search debate, uh, you just go into the live wire search bar and put in RBA F. OI, that's uh, Foxtrot Oscar Indio, um, and you can um, you can look because I've documented it all in a piece. What's the balance of risks at the moment as the RBA sees it? It looks like they're reserved to the fact we're headed for a recession that we now need to have, um, and yet on the other hand, they still talk about narrow roads to soft landings. If you're in the room, what do you think they'd be concerned about? Well, I think... The thumbnail sketch is they're not really concerned about a recession and they're not really concerned about the the dark economic consequences that we've been discussing because they have an inflation problem. You know, headline inflation is running at high 7%. This is the most elevated consumer price inflation we've seen in 40 years. And um, for them, it's existential. They need to get inflation back to target because if they don't, they lose their credibility. And their modeling and research implies that if they lose their credibility, they won't win it back and they'll have to deal with the de-anchoring of inflation expectations and high and volatile inflation. Um, and so for them, you know, these guys have been bred and, and, and you know, they're really kind of um, sucking from the, uh, the uh, inflation targeting teat. Um, from birth, right? They've been bred on this stuff. And so it's of paramount importance they get the inflation back to target. I think also what's happened is because inflation has rolled over um, globally, or with, uh, I mean, the evidence is that I think core inflation peaked here in Australia in the September quarter. So uh, the the core inflation rate has also rolled over here. But there's, there's a clear and quite sharp rolling over inflation in the US and in some other countries. And the central banks feel like they have the upper hand in this, this battle with the inflation genie. Um, and it's clear when you listen to Powell speak that they want to, and you, when you listen to Lowe speak, that they all want to err now on the side because they think they're winning the battle of hiking too hard and fast and too far and kind of buggering the short-term consequences because they would argue the long-term benefits of getting inflation back to target and under control are more sustainable uh, prosperity. So I think... Um, Nobody knows whether we're going to have a recession. Um, the U.S. has already had technically two negative quarters of GDP growth in the first half of 2022. We run quite 
uh, extensive recession forecasting models internally. Kieran Davies, our chief macro strategist, produces these. We've published on on Livewire repeatedly. So if you if you listen to what I wrote on Livewire in late 2021, when the you know US 10-year government bond, bond yield was at 1%, and the bond market was saying the Fed's only going to the Fed was at zero in December 21. The bond market was saying the Fed's only going to go to 1%. Right, and equities are all-time highs. Cryptos are all-time was at all-time highs. House prices were rising. I wrote in Livewire. Listen, the US ten year was going to three point two percent plus. It was one percent. The Fed's going to have to hike to three. Um, US equities going to have to fall thirty percent. Well, S and P fell twenty six percent. Nasdaq fell thirty six percent. Aussie house prices are going to get crushed. Crypto is going to have to get crushed. You know, crypto's down more than seventy percent. Um, and then in early twenty two, so the start of last year, on Livewire we published our US recession forecasting model that implied that we're going to have a high probability of US recession. So our central case is a US and European recession, uh, a global recession. Whether that means Australia. Which you know the economist refers to as the one to down, down under because we're kind of intrinsically very very elastic economically. We always seem to be able to kind of avoid a lot of the uh, the potholes that um, pepper other economies. We do have some unique tailwinds. We've got elevated commodity prices. We've got what we've forecast for ages would be a record immigration boom that would in turn power very very strong population growth, which will help. Uh, the federal budget is almost in surplus. The states. You know, Queensland's running a surplus. Western Australia's running a surplus. South Australia's in good shape. Uh, Victoria's a basket case. Um, if Daniel Mookie and Chris Minns win the New South Wales election, and I'd strongly encourage you to consider voting for them, um, they're very fiscally conservative. Um, and I think they'll get the New South Wales budget back into, uh, if not the black, uh, into good shape. Um, so the, the point is that budget, uh, the fiscal policy has a, has a lot of ammunition potentially to support growth in the event that we have any adversity. So I think, um, I think it is going to be very tough. I think we're going to see a huge default cycle, uh, tons of, you know, mortgage arrears. I think we're going to have, we have a subprime crisis in the, in the, in the SME market, a subprime crisis in the corporate buying market where our borrowers have been not borrowing, not from banks, but from high yield and uh, private loan investors um, who have been happy to provide finance to those very risky or riskier borrowers in the search for yield environment. So I think, uh, you know, we've got droves of zombie companies, according to our numbers, you know, 12 to 15% of all ASX firms don't have enough earnings to pay the interest on their debt. And that that share has multiplied massively over the last decade. And that's true in the US, UK, and Europe, according to our systems. So I, I think it's going to be really, really ugly for markets in the next one to two years. Whether Australia goes into recession is is actually hard to tell. And I don't think anyone knows. And I guess the other key takeaway here is, you know, you've got a household debt to income ratio at levels it's never been at before. So we've never had this experiment where we've got record levels of debt and we're going to impose upon borrowers record rate increases. And the truth is nobody knows. But what I know is it's going to be tough. Good times. <laughs> In terms of the housing market, and this kind of forecast is a, a mugs game. Um, but if if you were to Are you calling me a mug? <laughs> <laughs> if you were to bet your house on it, no pun intended, where and when will we hit bottom? What's your best guess? What or maybe to re rephrase it, what would it depend on? Well, you know, I can sort of elaborate on what I said earlier, which is that we expect the peak to trough drawdown to be fifteen to twenty five percent. Right now we're at ten. 
So at some point between 15 and 25, we think the market will reach a bottom, partly because uh, we think that'll be driven by the RBA completing its hiking cycle. Um, I think you know, that's a key indicator. When the RBA stops, stops raising rates, um, I think house prices will continue falling for a period thereafter. But um, certainly if the RBA starts cutting rates, I think that will be a key catalyst for house prices stabilizing and possibly recovering somewhat. Um, the bond market has kind of flirted with pricing in um, some very, very modest cuts from the RBA later this year. That's possible. Uh, that's not the narrative the central banks are spinning, which is they want to keep rates high for long. But um, but yeah, we need to uh, get through the hiking cycle. And then I think that the housing market, it's like if you look at the valuation of commercial properties, they haven't adjusted to high rates. I mean, you're still seeing yields on commercial property around 4 5% core commercial property when you can get 4% on a TD and 6.7% on a bank bond. That doesn't make any sense. So those commercial property yields need to go up and the prices need to go down in the unlisted market. That's why commercial property globally is a bit of a disaster. And on the residential side, the savings buffers aren't going to save us? I don't think the savings buffers are going to save us. I think um, the reality is purchasing power. You know, every 100 basis points of mortgage rate increases reduces the marginal buyer's purchasing power by 10 to 15%. And so you've had a massive reduction in purchasing power, and that's going to permanently lower house prices unless those rate hikes are unwound. Um, and, um, yeah, so I would, I would expect – um, that there is a reasonable prospect of the housing market finding some stability in late 23 slash, you know, first half of 2024, as in stability. Um, but uh, I think the risks are that I think certainly the lower bound of our forecast range, like a 15% drawdown, noting the biggest ever fall in Aussie house prices is only 10.7%. That 15% is looking, A, very likely, and B, possibly a little optimistic. So it looks like we're you know, going to be converging towards you know, 15 to 20 at this juncture. Um, but you know, with apartment yields still around 4%, why would you buy an apartment where before stamp duty land tax Council duties, maintenance costs, depreciation, blah, 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 blah. You're only getting gross pre-fees 4% when you can get a 4% TD from CBA. So we've had this absolutely profound change in the risk-free cash rate, and that risk-free cash rate needs to propagate through the entire financial system, and it needs to reset returns and yields everywhere. And unfortunately, in a liquid asset classes like commercial property, like private credit, like um, high yield bonds, like uh, venture capital, private equity, we haven't seen that resetting. Now, that resetting of yields is the interest rate effect. The second round effect is, well, if we get these massive hikes, which we've got, and that pushes economies into recession, we're then going to have earnings destruction and we're going to have defaults, and that uh, earnings effect is arguably not in stock prices right now. So I think stocks have, at various points in the last year, reflected the interest rate effects, but are they pricing in a global recession? I would say not, and um, have you know the risks of much higher defaults in high yield and private credit really been reflected in, in the returns that people are capturing? I would argue not. Um, but ultimately, it's an empirical question. Like people, reasonable people can have different perspectives on this. It's possible I could be wrong, but you know we have very, very high conviction in this view. Back in 2010, GMO's Jeremy Grantham said Australia had the mother of all housing bubbles, and 
you basically told him to put his money where his mouth is and short the housing market. You were going to facilitate it. In the end, you never found a counterparty. I assume you would make the same bet now. How could one even go about shorting the Australian housing market? Well, I actually think we did find counterparty. So just a little bit of backstory on that uh, that exchange. So I think it was in late 2010. He did say it was the mother of all asset price bubbles. Um, the RBA stopped raising rates in November 2010. And um, I went to Grantham and said, well, again, as you say, you, you, I think he was running like $200 billion in FUM. And I said, put your money where your mouth is and why don't you put a small trade and short um, a house price index that I'd helped design. This is the CoreLogic Daily Hedonic House Price Index. CoreLogic produces the house price data that everyone reads in the newspapers these days and that the RBA uses. And when I talk about house prices, I'm actually using uh, the CoreLogic data and the indices that um, we developed for them. Um, And I think it was a three-year bet from memory and um, I think whether you look at prices or total returns, uh, if he had entered into that trade, he would have lost and I would have won. Um, but he he was mute. Um, he was silent. I mean, for a guy that was really, really keen to uh, vocalize his views, I was surprised because I did have um, – uh, I think I did have counterparties that were willing to, to put on that trade. Um, but how you would do it is you'd need an over-the-counter bilateral derivative contract on a house price index, which any investment bank could facilitate. So if you it, couldn't you couldn't do it with swaps anymore like Michael Burry did? Um, yeah, well, you could do it with OTC derivatives and you just need to find somebody that wanted to take the other side of the trade. So somebody who wanted to get long housing um, and uh, allow the counterparty who wants to take the short side to express that view. Um, and, you know, for relatively small, um, I, I don't think we're talking about a massive, uh, actually, I think we were talking about $100 million exposure, um, which I think I argued was a um, uh, relatively modest in the scheme of their overall FUM. But I think you can do that trade. But I think your broader question is can you short house prices? Listen, I put uh, we had in our portfolios $10 billion of credit shorts um, from late 2021 through to mid-22. And um, so we were shorting Aussie bank bonds in Aussie dollars, US bank bonds in US dollars, Euro bank bonds in um, euros. And um, we were doing that through reverse re- something called reverse repo. We were doing it through uh, CDS um, contracts, so CDS investment grade CDS in the US and and in Europe and high yield CDS in the US and Europe. And those trades were, I think, we made money on about eighty three percent of those trades, and the IRRs were around six percent. So those trades were in the main very very profitable, and actually our best performing positions over the twelve months to thirty June twenty two. Um, so you can get short certain things. Uh, it's not been very easy to get short Aussie housing. It's basically impossible is the short answer. Uh, excuse the pun. The The other option has been to try and short RMBS. So these are portfolios of home loans that are securitized, residential mortgage-backed securities. This is something we've tried to do, but very, very hard, if not impossible in Australia. The market's so illiquid. Uh, RMBS, very, very uh, illiquid these days and um, hard to cover the short. Um, so the, the great Aussie housing short is a... I mean, we've had this view, and if we'd had it on, it would have made us a lot of money. Um, but it's very hard to monetize, unfortunately. But it's a good, it's a good point. Like, if anyone's listening, we should at some point try and figure out a way to short Aussie housing because it would be nice to. Have. I mean, there are also quite a lot of natural shorts that people want to hedge house price risk. So, yeah, the lenders, mortgage loss insurers that um, insure against default risk on home loans, the LMIs, they're actually natural shorts. Um, the banks probably also wouldn't mind hedging up a bit of house price risk. 
All right, let's move on to Coolabar Capital. You specialize in generating alpha through bond and cash market mispricing. How does Coolabar find these mispriced assets? Yeah, so we have a very unusual process. Um, I guess we're very, very distinctive and different to um, a lot of the other amazing you know, bond managers that exist out there. Uh, we have 35 staff. We um, so we probably have the biggest team in Aussie fixed income by quite some margin. Um, we have eight portfolio managers, uh, twelve analysts. We have a fairly quantitative process, so most of our PMs have um, backgrounds in um, you know physical sciences or engineering. Uh, we have a data science team of you know mathematicians and engineers. We do a lot of software engineering internally, but basically the simple that all sounds pretty fancy. Um, as I mentioned, we have about seven billion in FUM and about twelve billion in assets under management. Um, uh, but the the kind of distilled uh, task, uh, the distilled mission is we're just trying to reprice or value correctly all liquid, high grade bank bonds and corporate bonds globally that we trade, and also any um, sort of relevant, contiguous or um, adjacent. Uh, government securities, so we do trade some some government bonds, um, and we want to figure out what's the right interest rate for this security to pay, to pay us, given its risk features. So you know, given its time to maturity, given its credit rating, given its liquidity, given its position in the capital structure, um, and uh, you know, ultimately we want to be compensated for the risk of default, the risk of loss in default, uh, and the illiquidity risk. So in fixed income, you know, the easy way to drive returns. There's three big levers in, in bonds or fixed income. You can take more interest rate risk, which basically means taking more duration risk or investing in fixed rate bonds. And much like you know, if you invest in a five-year fixed rate term deposit, you'd be taking a big interest rate bet on where interest rates are heading over the next five years. If interest rates were to jump, that would have been a bad bet. If they fell, it would have been a good bet. And the second thing you can do is just take default risk. So, you know, lend to riskier businesses. So, you know, a very popular trade in um Prior to the pandemic, was those Virgin senior bonds that were paying, I think, seven or eight percent, and very popular um, with investors. And they defaulted and were all but a zero. Uh, so that's credit risk. And then the final way to um, drive yield is through illiquidity risk, which is loans or private credit. Um, and these are non-tradable. Uh, and you basically make a loan to a company, and uh, you know some portion of the time those companies will default. Although those lenders will probably say they're not defaulting because we're going to restructure the loan, so they'll turn a five-year loan into a fifty-year loan, or we'll take equity in the business, or whatever. We don't do that stuff. What we do is we focus on very highly rated bonds, typically A to AA rated bonds that are super liquid, uh, super tradable, and that are mispriced, which means. Th- for us, they're paying too much interest for their risk. So we run them through our models and we find bonds that are paying excess interest. And then we buy that bond when the spread or the interest rate drops to our target, we get a gain on the price and then we sell the bond. Um, and we're- to, clarif- to clarify, do you just generate return based on that mispricing or do you also generate it from the risk premium? Yes, that's an interesting question. Um, we're pretty agnostic to the risk premium. To put that in simple language, you know, some bonds pay low yields because they've got low risk. Other bonds pay high yields because they've got more risk. Um, we're just looking for mispricing. So sometimes the mispricings can be in the safest assets. Other times they can be in actually quite risky assets. Um, but our returns actually come from both. So we are earning the yield on the bond or the, the risk premium, and we're also earning um, some returns from mean reversion. Our t- typical holding periods are, are not super long. So you, your normal bond fund manager might have 3,000 bonds, a couple of guys running it, or let's say a few hundred bonds, couple of guys running it, they might hold them for, you know, to maturity. Whereas our typical holding periods are measured in months. So the shorter holding periods, and we typically only have 
around 100 positions. Um, but we are, you know, one of the most active investors, if not the most active investors in whatever securities we trade. We we tend to focus on global banks and global financial so financial so banks and insurers because they're the safest institutions. They have the highest credit ratings. They often have implicit and explicit government guarantees, and they also issue uh, the most liquid securities. And they issue lots of complex securities. So, you know, Telstra might have equity in senior bonds, whereas CBO is going to have equity. It's going to have a hybrid. It's going to have a T two bond, a senior bo- unsecured bond, a senior covered bond, or Secure, secured bond, and then you know, CBO also issue RMBS. So we trade, um, you know, complex capital structures that are liquid, very high grade, very very low risk, um, and and we're super active. And I was just looking at the data today um, for somebody, but like since um, one January twenty twenty one, we've traded about one hundred and eighteen billion dollars of bonds. And about 60% of that has been Aussie dollars and about 40% has been in US dollars and euros. So we have six people in London, three traders in London. How many trades is that across? Yeah, we're, we're typically doing 50 to 100 trades a day, um, typically trading you know, north of $300 million a day. Um, and But I think of us as like a value-based equity investor who's looking for mispriced stocks that are cheap, that have got you know typically cash generative, have high dividend yields. We're looking for bonds that are cheap, um, that have uh, higher yields than they should otherwise have, that are liquid, monetizable, and we want them to mean revert as fast as possible. Now, if we're running a long-only portfolio, everything's cheap. You can have periods where you get big shocks, and then what will happen is all the spreads on all the bonds will go higher, and all the bond prices will go down, and the portfolio will experience a negative return, irrespective of how cheap it is, right? Because that's you know the, the market's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, but then what happens every single time is those spreads will mean revert eventually. So there's a shock like March 2020 where we saw a huge explosion in credit spreads. And every bond manager on earth had negative returns unless they were running an illiquid portfolio that wasn't being marked to market probably. But then in you know, April, May, June, July, August, you know, through to the end of the year, returns were sensational because those spreads came back. How efficient are bond markets compared to equity markets? They're certainly not price-like equities. Uh, does that offer more opportunities to find these mispricings? Very good questions. Impressive. Okay. Yeah, so this is really our kind of you know, mission in life. Uh, we're focused on the informational efficiency of markets because we're an active manager. Every position is us basically saying we think our assets mispriced, therefore the market's got it wrong, therefore we're right. We've got to have the courage of our convictions. It's not easy to say that the collective wisdom of crowds is wrong and we're right, but that's what we have to do all day, every day, and, and ideally find these asymmetric situations where we understand it better, an asset better than the rest of the market, and uh, we've we've priced it and analysed it better, and we have high conviction that there's a, a mean reversion opportunity. Uh, OTC credit markets are insanely inefficient. So listed equities, every trade everyone can see. You know, I probably traded uh, last year, let's say thirty billion of bonds in Aussie dollars. Those prices are not reported anywhere. Like literally, nobody has those prices. Where, where do you see them? We see the trades we do, okay. yeah. So we, so what happens in the bond market is I see my prices, but I'm not seeing, you know, um, you know, Capstream's prices. Uh, so that it's incredibly opaque. It's a dark asset class. What we are doing is we're seeing all the banks streaming their bids and offers to us. Um, so that provides some information content. 
Um, but yeah, hugely opaque. It's often, it's well, it's quite common for bids and offers to cross. Um, so, you know, not that we would ever exploit those pure arbitrage opportunities against the street, against the banks, but like, you know, you can see CBA willing um, to effectively buy a bond for a price that's higher than a UBS would be willing to sell it, hypothetically. Obviously, you know, CBA and UBS would never make that mistake, but um, very inefficient. And then if you think about the participants in the market, in fixed income, people pay you passive fees. So they're basically paying you index fund style fees if you're an equity manager. So, you know, for a decent account of $100 million, they're probably paying you 10, 20, 30 basis points, no performance fee. And so the stereotypical response to that is say, okay, well, I will build a portfolio of 500 to 1,000 bonds and um, I'll have a, a guy running the portfolio, maybe two, max three normally. And they're not really going to be actively trading a thousand bonds or 500 bonds. They're just going to kind of give you the index yield plus maybe some extra. What's the extra? Okay, we'll just go over the weight, the risky stuff. Just take more risk and you'll get more yield in the, the index. And you hope that on average you outperform that index after fees. The truth in, um, in Aussie fixed income, if you look at active managers against the composite bond index over the last uh, five and 10 years, most have materially out underperform the index even more so than equities so the unlike equities the fixed income fund manager is the caricature is a, typically a much more passive portfolio that's not as active significantly more limited resources the reason they have fewer analysts and fewer pms or portfolio managers is they're paid lower fees so they can't afford to have the same infrastructure that equities or hedge fund manager might um, so you've then got participants that are very passive, and if they're passive, then they're not actually contesting price, and they're not looking for the mispricings. They're not hunting them out. And so we find that the price discovery process in fixed income is in extremely inefficient. In the US and Euro markets, a bit, it's more efficient, um, definitely, but there's more opportunity. So rather than being limited to 50 to 100 issuers, say in Aussie dollars, you've got thousands of issuers in those markets, and, and you know, they're replete with opportunity. At the portfolio level, how are you thinking about the quality and the duration of the mix of bonds? How do you how do you manage yeah, that? You know, so, in the context of the economy and, and your your objectives. Yeah, so uh, think about it in terms of building blocks. We run twenty eight portfolios, twenty custom mandates, circa eight retail funds. Each mandate has different rules, requirements, objectives, risk objective, return objective, liquidity um, requirement, and so each portfolio will have different appetites. You know, it may want to buy or sell different assets, and it'll also have different restrictions. So what they can and can't invest in is is going to vary portfolio by portfolio, and then we have to allocate all trades pro rata according to demand. So each portfolio is treated equally. Um, in terms of um, how we think about portfolio construction, um, the way our process works is we start by looking for the right companies or issuers, be they government agencies, banks, corporates, insurers. We want to find companies that are basically risk-free. We don't want any default risk. We want to find companies that are uh, oligopolis or monopolists. We want to find companies that have what we say no endogenous credit risk. So we don't have any, if we're only holding a position for three days, uh, I don't want to have it blow up in my face because of some weird you know, risk. Um, it's why we generally avoid conglomerates um, or anything that embeds a lot of tail risk. It also is why we, we avoid you know, triple B corporates or high yield. So we're not like a private loan manager or a high yield manager that's willing to lend to very risky companies and wear that default risk because we want to trade in and out and our holding periods are relatively contained. Uh, we need kind of riskless companies. So that's the first kind of phase of the process. Second phase of the process is we bring to bear 
you know, I think some of the world's best quantitative resources, and we're repricing every bond globally live, and we're looking and we're adjusting for all the features of the bond and trying to figure out what's the right interest rate it's paying. Uh, so what is the right interest rate for it to pay? What is it currently paying? What's the difference between those two numbers? What are the cheap bonds? What are the expensive bonds? And then we'll go long the cheap ones, and if we can go short, we'll go short the um, expensive ones. Um, having said that, we then need to ask ourselves, well, how big is the mispricing? Is it actually executable? Will it mean revert? Has the model missed something? If you look at some of our models, I'll tell you Credit Swiss bonds are the cheapest bonds on the planet right now. But we know we've we've been short Credit Swiss since last year, and we were negative on Credit Swiss you know, in early, early 2022 on the basis of the Greensill dramas um, and the GAM dramas. So. So there are things, there are variables that are often not in the models, and that's why we have a deep credit research process. We have a fundamental credit research team, four or five analysts, who are looking at the businesses, trying to understand the businesses, and we have a, a four or five-person team of data scientists who are doing all the maths and stats, and we bring those two together, and so we, we find you know, perfect issuers with really cheap securities. Then we look at the liquidity characteristics of the bonds. Are they tradable? What was it like in March 2020? What was it like in other stressed environments? So can we get actually in and out? And if we find a monetizable opportunity, then it'll look up to the portfolio managers, the APMs, and then we'll debate and discuss, well, what's the right sizing? Um, what's the right timing of the position? And that's when we interlay or overlay the macro. The macro is very, very important in getting the zeitgeist of markets right. It's no point buying a cheap bond if it's going to stay cheap because everyone's freaking out and it's March 2020. Um, on the other hand, we bought in so a lot of credit funds froze in March 2020. We traded almost a billion of credit in March 2020. Um, and the reason we were able to do that was because we focused on high grade issuers that are always liquid. Um, we sold about 100 million, we bought about 900 million. Um, but the reason we bought 900 million in March 2020, if we had thought that was going to be a prolonged pandemic, pandemic that would lead to a depression and basically, you know, mayhem like Magellan did for a long period of time, then we wouldn't have bought in March 2020. But our COVID forecasting models at the time told us that the first waves were going to basically peak in late March, early April 2020. And we had a high conviction that central banks were going to basically pump maximum QE into the economy and treasuries would pump, pump maximum fiscal stimulus. So we wanted to go ball steep credit and and limit long, and that's what we did. We went absolutely limit long um, credit in March 2020. Um, in the same way, we went limit short credit in late 2021, early 2022, through to mid 22. And right now, we're getting long again because we're much more constructive. So the macro is very, very important, and it is very multifaceted. It's not pure systematic. It's not like we've got algorithms that are saying buy the cheap bonds, sell the expensive bonds. Uh, we do a huge amount of credit research, a huge amount of quant, and then we do a huge amount of macro. And then you need to synthesize that down in a multi-dimensional space, and then you need to be. Uh, you need to develop the muscle memory of making very good decisions consistently over time under duress with imperfect information. So the funds have performed very well uh, since inception, but the past 12 months are a little bit more mixed. What about the past year has made things a bit tougher? Yeah, we've had pretty good returns over the last 12 months um, across our strategies. Um, in fact, the only, like, uh, I can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I, I see, yes, basically a whole bunch of products that had pretty solid positive returns um, in the last 12 months. You know, HBRD was up 3.48%. Um, our cash enhanced funds were up 1.5% to 2% uh, in a period where, you know, the composite bond index was down uh, about 7%. Um, so, um, the one strategy that struggled over the last year was our composite bond strategy because it has to have uh, the same interest rate risk as the index or the same duration as the index. And that's what 
that's why the index was down 7%. Um, our strategy was down an almost identical amount. Um, in the last uh, three and six months, our strategies massively outperformed the index. Um, and since inception, we've beaten the index by about 128 basis points per annum pre-fees. And I believe it's you know, more or less the number one ranked composite bond strategy that um, is in that universe, at least to the best of my knowledge. Um, the challenge for us, though, more broadly, over the last 12 months, um, and, and I think for all participants, is we foresaw a tale of two halves. And I think we executed on both well, um, but there are also, uh, as is inevitable, the kind of known unknowns that that creep out. So if you think of us late 2021, we're out there saying we hated our own asset class. We said credit spreads are going to move 100 basis points wider. We have 10 billion of credit shorts. I don't know any other manager that had these positions. Um, we said duration is going to get destroyed because the 10-year government bond yield in the US is going from 1% to north 3.2. Right now, it's 35 um, Credit spreads did move 100 basis points wider. Um, and so our credit shorts did phenomenally well, as I mentioned. I think the IRR on our portfolio was about 6% on about uh, – 10 billion of shorts and our win rate was over 80% and we were shorting everything that would move from, and that was from late 21 through to mid 22. So that trade went well. Um, the next thing we did was because we didn't like our own asset class, we'd, we got out of it. So we basically sold all of our credit. That was the right trade to make. Uh, and when we uh, sold our credit, we went into cash. And then the other asset class we went into, which we thought was very cheap, was interest rate hedge government bonds. We took out the duration risk um, and we focused on state government bonds because we thought that the, and they're called semis, we thought that the state government bond market looked cheap and that more particularly we had figured out, which no one had figured out in late 21, that the banks had a huge liquidity hole on their balance sheet. Specifically, we quantified that the banks needed to buy between $315 billion and $570 billion of government bonds because the liquidity hole, it's complicated, but it is what it is. At the time, nobody knew about it. I went and briefed all the bank treasurers. Uh, nobody disagreed with me when we ran them through our numbers. They hadn't done the modeling. It's quite amazing. Uh, and since that time, we've seen completely unprecedented bank buying of these government bonds, particularly the state government bonds, as we expected. However, when we hedged the interest rate risk, we used interest rate futures. This is going to sound a little bit complicated, slightly inside baseball. But so the vast majority of managers hedge interest rate risk using interest rate futures. When banks buy bonds, they hedge bonds using interest rate swaps. We didn't use swaps. The banks were always going to buy those semis on a, on a, a, a spread to swap basis as known or hedge with swaps. With the benefit of hindsight, we should have bought our semis hedge with swaps, not futures. Um, a lot of the time, it hasn't made much of a difference, the choice of hedge. Uh, and the futures hedge has been um, uh, more liquid and, and lower um, cost from a transaction point of view. Unfortunately, in late 2021, the RBA suddenly dropped its yield curve target. I was about to ask, did yeah. that really complicate things? How did yeah. you invest during yield Yeah, control? so because we hedge all our interest rate risk out, which was – I think immensely prescient because we had zero duration. We weren't affected by that at all because we're running floating rate portfolios. Interest rates go through the roof when they drop the yield curve target in November. But the consequence was that they also blew up the swaps market. So swap rates went through the roof. And there were a lot, a lot of global investors that were long swaps that needed to exit. And the swaps market became a liquid. And as they were trying to exit their swaps position, it pushed the swap rate higher and higher and higher. And it particularly pushed something called swap spreads higher. Swap spreads represent the difference between the swap rate and the government bond yield. And that then in turn pushed up the cost of hedging a state government bond. So this bizarre situation arose where hedging costs went through the roof. And so 
uh, the spreads on state government bonds have had to go through the roof to compensate for higher hedging costs. Had we hedged with swaps, we would have made a fortune on our semis because semi spreads to swap compressed dramatically um, from late 21 through to mid 22. We hedge with futures and semi spreads to futures went about 40 basis points wider. So that hurt our performance. Um, even though, uh, had we not been invested in semis and been invested in credit, which was the other alternative, um, you know, credit spreads went 100 plus wider, 100, 125 wider. So semis outperformed credit massively. Uh, so that helped on a relative basis, but uh, the the trade that the banks need to buy hundreds of billions of dollars of semis that no one else knew about that we went and explained and schooled the banks on, uh, and actually the sell side said we were wrong, and frankly the bank traders were telling us we were wrong. But then by 2022, the sell side started doing their numbers, and ANZ came out and said, "Oh yeah, they need to buy about 300 billion." And CBA came out and they said they need to buy 300 billion. NABSAT came out and they said they need to buy 300 billion. UBS came out and said, "Oh, they need to buy about 375 billion." And all those numbers were actually wrong. We found flaws in every single report that understated the buying. The buying's more like four, five hundred billion, and um, so that trade. So the semis position has worked really well for us in the last six months. It's been a major driver of returns. So that trade has come good, but at the same time, the stuff that we were negative on. And the short position worked brilliantly, but the stuff we were negative on, which was bank bonds and corporate bonds because spreads were too tight, those spreads have exploded. And so suddenly they've become incredibly attractive. So we've bought, um, you know, probably five or six billion dollars of bank bonds and corporate bonds in the last six to seven months and mainly bank bonds, almost no corporate bonds. And, um, and, and those, those opportunities actually pound for pound are a little bit more attractive. Um, than the semis, even though the semis look um, also extremely attractive. So, you know, the yields in our portfolios, in our cash enhanced funds, in 2021, the yield was 1%. Right now, it's 5%. Um, you know, in our long short strategy in 2021, the yield was about 3%. Uh, it's been as high as 12% um, recently. Um, so we, we are now getting the benefit of uh, the availability of super cheap assets, um, our semi thesis has fully come to fruition. The bank buying of semis is bigger than anyone has ever seen in history. So that's playing out beautifully. Um, semi spreads over the last um, three to six months have started to perform. Bank spreads have started to, to perform. And so we've had, you know, our, our long short credit fund in the last three months is up 5.7%. In some of our custom insta mandates, you know, I have one client in January in the month made 5%. Um, so we've had some stellar returns over the last year, three months, six months. Um, but definitely the first half of 2022 was choppy because um, whilst we got out of credit and we got out of duration, when we went back into interest rate hedge government bonds, there was this third order consequence from the source market blowing up, which unfortunately is actually very hard to explain. Um, and frankly, would bore the pants off most people. Um, but I'm, I'm incredibly excited. We've had pretty strong inflows. Uh, we've probably had about $800 million of inflows in the last month or two. Um, and um, so so we're really excited about the yields we're seeing. We're excited about the mispricings we're seeing. And there's going to be a lot of fixed income supply. And the other thing that I think is interesting for the audience is what I'm seeing from all my clients globally and asset allocators is they've kind of said things like, we are long to the gills equities in the 90s and 2000s. And we got particularly long to the gills, you know, private credit and high yield and commercial property and resi property and venture capital and private equity in the post GFC period. Because, you know, interest rates were zero. We couldn't get yield anywhere. Um, and you didn't want to buy fixed income. Well, now government bonds are paying four to five percent. Uh, bank bonds are paying, you know, five to seven percent. TDs are paying four percent. 
And these guys have CPI plus, you know, 3% targets. So assuming the RBA gets its cash rate back down to, sorry, its uh, trim mean core inflation rate back down to two to three, um, you know, this should be a tremendous opportunity for fixed income. And we are see, starting to see a pivoting away from equities back into fixed income for the first time in, in decades. The other thing that's fascinating is some of the biggest buyers in equity of equities globally were defined benefit pension funds that were running funding gaps and basically they couldn't pay out the money to their members to meet their expected liabilities and so the way they solved that gap was they had to take risk so for the, you know for many decades all these pension funds globally in Japan and the US and Europe here in Australia have all been loaded to the gills equities because it's like we're trying to close the funding gap and now because of the huge increase in interest rates the the the, the expected liabilities have shrunk and a lot of these pension funds are in surplus and so what we keep on hearing consistently consistently on our travels overseas and from my my you know, six guys in London is that um, these pension funds are starting to shift our allocation out of equities back into bonds. It's amazing when the Bank of England had to bail them out and go back to QE. Unbelievable. Yeah, only only for a short period of time they did QE. Um, but I think that was what was interesting about that was trust announces forty nine billion sterling of unfunded spending, and the bond market bandits were back because they the bond market turned around, increased you know gilt yields or UK government bond yields by hundreds of basis points, and suddenly the the whole system was threatened. The solvency of the whole system was threatened. And what do they do? They roll the prime minister. They junk all the policies, and you know the bond market was the tail wagging the dog, forcing the UK prime minister to bend the knee. And that's what happened. And that's kind of the way it should work. When you know politicians run wild, it's up to the people lending to the politicians to say, "Hey, enough's enough." Um, and uh, and and we're quite activists and uh, in our own portfolio, so we're very focused on our our borrowers behaving well as part of our ESG activism and. Um, you know, we had a, we had, I had a dust up with uh, Dominic Perrottet in 2021. I discovered a plan. We were the only investors in the world that discovered a plan where New South Wales wanted to issue 20 billion to 40 billion of extra taxpayer debt to allow T Corp, their investment arm, to pump that in equities. And the head of T Corp was literally telling the bond market, "Listen, as long as equ- this was in June 21, as long as equities always go up, and as long as interest rates always stay like at one percent, you know, for a 10-year New South Wales bond." then happy days. I can earn 6% or 7% in equities and only cost me 1%. And he wanted to run basically a huge levered carry trade. I wrote about this in the AFR many times. I went to Perita. I said, this is crazy. You've turned New South Wales balance sheet into a levered hedge fund. You can't do this. And to make matters worse, the fund they wanted to do this with was something called the Debt Retirement Fund. And they, New South Wales had sold a ton of infrastructure. Um, there was, uh, there was I think, $26 billion of taxpayer money from WestConnex sales. So they sold this toll road called WestConnex and, and they put some budget surpluses in there. So they had 26 billion of cash in a debt repayment fund to reduce New South, New South Wales taxpayer debt. And they set this up in 2018. In 2018, New South Wales taxpayer debt was about $50 billion. Fast forward to 2021, it was like $100 billion. So you've had the pandemic, you've had an explosion in debt, you've got 26 billion in cash sitting there to be used to pay back debt. Instead, and guess who's getting paid management fees to run the $26 billion, the investment arm, T-Corp. So T-Corp's like, no, 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 don't use that money to pay that debt back. Actually, why don't you issue 20 to $40 billion of extra money, put it in the fund, pay us management fees to run it for you, right? And um, and it'll all be okay if equities always go up and interest rates always stay low. And, of course, I went through their annual report and they had uh, 180 staff 
And you'll never guess what the annual average salary was, $323,000. These are public servants, basically. And uh, yeah, where, just, where do I apply? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I went to Perite, who kind of claimed he didn't understand all this. And, um, but eventually I had to run a massive campaign for three months. Um, and we single, Coolabar single-handedly forced them to shut the program down one. So they stopped um, the program to issue the extra debt. And then they actually pulled 11 billion out of that fund and bought back the debt. So reduced taxpayer debt. So we, we do a lot of that activism. Chris, you've been very generous with your time. Before I let you go, I'd love to hear your perspective on where the best value is at the moment in uh, the investment grade bond and cash markets? Well, that's a really interesting question because, you know, again, we did $118 billion of bond trades from 1 January 21 through to today and half was in US dollars and US and half was in Aussie dollars. So there's opportunities every day. That's the truth. Um, and there's no universal sort of um, – constant as to where the best mispricings exist. They're constantly changing. Like right now today, I've bid $150 million for a South Australian government bond that looks dirt cheap. Uh, we've bid $50 million for a Japanese bank bond that looks sort of cheap. Um, um, and uh, we, um, we we put a hundred we bid for $150 million of ANZ tier two bond that looks very cheap. Um, but I would say if I was to abstract away from that day-to-day that -day granularity, um, we think globally, we don't like corporate bonds. Generally, we don't think they look cheap. Uh, we don't like high yield. We can invest in high yield. I'm not just a you know, perma bear on high yield. We have the ability to invest in high yield, um, but we think high yield looks very, very expensive. Um, private credit, we can obviously touch personally and have involved ourselves you know, pri privately and personally in private credit exposures in the past, but I, I think that's uh, going to be hugely problematic. Um, the hybrid market, we've sold uh, $1.1 billion of hybrid since uh, 30 June 22. So hybrid spreads were very tight um, and we've expressed a view that we'd rather be one notch up the capital structure in what are called tier two bonds. Uh, so we've bought um, about $2.5 billion of tier two bonds since um, uh, sometime last year. So right now, um, our number one opportunity would be tier two from the major banks and the regional banks, Macquarie, Suncorp, et al. I like tier two. Um, I like it in euros, US dollars and Aussie dollars, all hedge back to Aussie. Um, I do like bank senior paper, so senior bonds in, in Aussie dollars, US dollars and euros. Um, and I don't mind some of the US and European issuers, um, but it's a moving feast. One thing we're seeing in our markets uh, is um, a reasonable amount of volatility just in response to global macro events. So, you know, we had that US, strong US payrolls number. Uh, everyone gets very, very nervous. And then slowly but surely people start to look through that data, get superseded. We had that strong Aussie inflation print. Again, people get very nervous. Uh, and we've got a lot of bond supply. So one key point here is it's very different to the equity market where you see, you know, an IPO regularly. We're getting huge multi-billion dollar bond issues every other day. Um, so I would say... My, Actually, if I recast that, I think the, the primary new issue markets are very attractive across everything. That's probably target one. Target two would be bank senior and bank tier two. Uh, and I've been short, you know, I'm not just a fund manager spruiking kind of my bets. You know, we had $10 billion of credit shorts in bank senior and bank tier two. Uh, for much of 21 and 22, and we were avowedly negative of the sector. And when all our peers were sort of saying that bank senior spreads wouldn't move that wide, you know, five-year major bank senior was paying 
25 basis points over BBSW. We argued it needed to go to, um, you know, 80 plus, uh, really 80 to 100. Uh, you know, right now it's at 95. Um, uh, so we've been very negative on the sector. We're now very positive. We like to think we're very, very authentic. We're not just spruiking. Chris, this has been an amazing chat. Thank you so much for coming on the Rules of Investing. Thanks, brother. Appreciate the time. That's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.